When you think about a group of people and what defines them, there are certain events that come to mind, things of such great significance that what they do in the future involves remembering the past. Part of the way they keep their bearings and orient their lives is to keep an eye toward what has happened. When we consider the United States of America, things like the signing of the Declaration of Independence would come to mind. Pretty significant event. It changed so much with what the signatures and the signing meant. 21 years ago today on 9-11, what an what a event that certainly shaped the United States in profound ways. In addition to the horror of the Twin Towers being attacked, you have examples and actions of first responders and personnel displaying courage and sacrifice, the remembrances of things that define and shape a people. Uh, my mind also thinks about Great Britain in these days. Think about Queen Elizabeth, who has recently died, the monarch there for 70 years, arranged shaping and influencing people since 1952, the longest reign of a British monarch in their entire history. Things that shape and define a people. Now, if you go all the way back, and if you were to ask the Israelites, what is it, Israelites, that defines you? What most profoundly shapes you as a people, rooting your identity. There would be no need to negotiate and huddle and come back on a later date. The answer is without question. It's the Exodus. The Exodus. That was the profound, history-shaping, redemptive event of the Old Testament. The Exodus defined Israel's life, delivered from Egyptian captivity through an outpouring of wonders and judgments upon Egypt. When the Israelites fled, more wonders were in store. The Lord parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites cross on dry ground. From that point forward, they are a people defined by the redemption from Egypt. Captivity behind them, promised land before them, that is who they are. And part of the rhythm of their life as a nation would be a series of remembrances of what the Lord has done. That in order to live in the present and heading into the future step by step, an eye toward what God has done directs them. These things in Israel's life were scattered throughout the year and were called the feasts of the people. Times of celebration, times of remembrance, where they would enact certain practices to orient their minds and their bodies to remembrance. They would do these things as a nation. And they would remember who they were. They would remember what had happened. They'd remember why it happened. They'd remember how it happened. And they would remember together whose they were. Who it was who mightily redeemed them and faithfully blessed them and had promises and covenants he would keep for them. We come to A passage in Numbers 9, which my Bible heading says the Passover celebrated. In order to break apart the chapter and to give you this section heading, it tells us the Passover celebrated here in my ESV. Um, This is not the first Passover. This is the second one. And sometimes second things don't get as much of attention as the first. You can think of things in life where, you know, the first one was a really big deal. And the second one, it was like, eh, it might not get as much of a mention. The Passover here is the second one. And we remember the first. 
It's in Exodus. It's in chapter 12. The tenth plague was happening. The firstborn of Egypt were dying. The lamb's blood was on the households of the Israelites. Oh, the first Passover was filled with pomp and circumstance. And we remember the Passover sacrifice of Christ. We think about where all of that was heading. We remember the death of Jesus on the Passover weekend. But not a lot of attention is given in the latter parts of the Old Testament toward Passover events. Sometimes our eyes would easily pass over this second one. The second Passover of Israel, which has much to teach us. The celebration is reported in verses 1 to 5. The instructions and its keeping. Verses 1 to 5. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. And when we come to Numbers 9, we're given this time reference, this context. We're told it's the first month of the second year after they've come out of Egypt. They're marking a pretty important event then. They're marking the time where they left as a multitude of people from Egyptian slavery under the redeeming hand of God who had vanquished not only the land that had opposed them, but the gods of Egypt, which were no gods at all, whom he had humiliated gloriously in his might. This is the second Passover. The first one is reported in Exodus 12, and we are marking one year later in Numbers chapter 9. If the Exodus took place in approximately 1446 B.C., then in Numbers 9, we arrive one year later in around 1445. About 1445 B.C. That was 3,467 years ago today. I mean, not today, today, but you know, in this year. 3,467 years ago. The location, and not just the year is given, they're at Sinai. And they've been there for many Bible chapters. Since Exodus 19, that means the rest of Exodus, all the Leviticus, and here in the early chapters of Numbers, they're still there at Mount Sinai. At this mountain, they had received the Ten Commandments. Well, so this is not some uh, throwaway site or location, just one more along the way. Huge things happened here. Ten Commandments were given, as was many other laws and regulations. They even built a portable dwelling place where the manifest glory of God would be among the people. The presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. A tent, a tabernacle, a dwelling place that they could set up and tear down, set up and tear down. They built it and they're to take it with them when they travel. Just not yet. And they won't be at Sinai for much longer. Before they depart, they have a second Passover time. It's the new year in their calendar. It's the second year, but it's the first month of that year. And that means they have to mark the Passover. The first month of the year eventually took the Babylonian name of Nisan. So sometimes you might hear the word Nisan as the first month of Israel's calendar. And that's the month of their Passover. The instruction in verse 2 is clear. Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. This wasn't like how people scatter birthdays throughout the year or different family appointments and gatherings throughout the year where it's quite subjective and dependent on everybody's own circumstances and dates. This is a universal command to the Israelites. It is given to them by God and they are to keep it at an appointed time. Who appointed that time? God appointed that time. And therefore, at the appointed time, which was a divinely appointed time, they are to go in verse 13 on the 14th day of the month to celebrate it. The 14th day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it at its appointed time. According to all its statutes and rules, you shall keep it. That doesn't give you all those statutes and rules. Let's review a few of them. 
We know from Exodus 12, it involves several things. First of all, the killing of a lamb. It involved the killing of a lamb that had to be unblemished, without defect, and they would roast the meat. We get this from Exodus 12, verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. So the households in Israel would kill a lamb, and they would eat its meat. And that particular animal was to remember the lambs that were killed on the first Passover, one year earlier in Numbers 9. We also know they ate it with bread. Not just any kind of bread, but unleavened bread. Which means dough that didn't have the leaven in it to make it rise. That takes longer. In Egypt, they were ready to leave hastily. And they needed to not wait for anything to finish cooking. Anything to finish baking. They had to eat the meal in such a way that when Moses said we're leaving at the Lord's time, they could leave. Unleavened bread was something they could eat and prepare quickly. The eating of unleavened bread is specified in Exodus 12, verse 8. So you see the mention of lamb meat. You see the mention of unleavened bread. And then you see in Exodus 12, 8, bitter herbs. They're to have bitter herbs, eating it with the lamb and with the, uh, the bread, because the bitter herbs taste in a way that slavery was to taste. Harsh and bitter. Reminding them of the enslavement that they had tasted in their life. So that they could recall the bitterness of servitude before the Lord's redemption. There's no instruction for later Passover remembrances that they were to smear lamb's blood on doorposts and lintels. But they were at least to keep the lamb in its uh, killed state and eaten state um, for their household for that meal. In Exodus 12, 46, we're told that you will eat it in one house. So in other words, every household is to do this. You shall not take any flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. It's an interesting detail. Don't break any of its bones. All the congregation shall keep it, Exodus 12 says. And if a stranger or a sojourner with you would keep the Passover, let him be circumcised first, and then he can come near and take it. No uncircumcised person shall eat of it. This is reminding them that as a people of God, they have a covenant sign From Genesis 17, the sign of circumcision. And if people are to eat of the Passover of the Lord and remember the work of the Lord, they are to live as a covenant people with God and there's a covenant sign. And those things have to be included. Well, we're told there then in chapter 9, 3 of our passage that uh, they shall go according to all the statutes and rules, like some of those I just listed. The obedience is highlighted in verses 4 and 5. Moses told the people of Israel they should keep the Passover and they kept it. Now that summary probably includes uh, some explanation and some Q&A where they are now for the second time and outside the land of Egypt remembering something and the instructions about following it are going to be kept. They're not going to be saying, I think, in other words, Moses to them, I hope you guys remember how it was last year, go to your households. You know, I I think there's going to be some careful review about the ordinances and statutes of what the Passover must involve. And it tells us in verse 5, they kept it. Such good news. They kept the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai. What a celebration. All according to all the Lord commanded Moses, the people of Israel did. And all seems well. They killed the lambs, ate the unleavened bread, ate the bitter herbs. They did it at twilight. They did it in the wilderness of Sinai. All remembering what God had done. But in the book of Numbers, nothing is ever that simple. Verse 6 introduces in verses 6 to 8 a special case. 
some questions involving a situation that has arisen. The situation is ritual uncleanness. Ritual uncleanness is what we have in mind by some kind of ceremony or remembrance where your life had to consist of certain things, and that includes not being in contact recently with a dead body. It would render you ritually unclean. Here's what we're told. Verse 6. Look at the text with me. Chapter 9, 6. There were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. Those men said to him, we are unclean through teaching, through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering at its appointed time among the people of Israel? They could not fulfill with the congregation of Israel what they do in the first month of every year. And it was only the second time. Verses 6 and 7 is about ritual uncleanness through a dead body. And that's not because it was a sinful thing to do. But a dead body does have the mark of death most obviously. And only those who could approach the Lord in a ceremonial or ritual and sacrificial fashion that have no mark of death or recent contact with the dead were permitted. Because God is the God of life and overcomes death. This wasn't a sinful thing in order to, to uh, become in contact with the body. It probably happened because they were touching a dead relative. If you have to handle the remains in the funeral of a dead body, then you would inevitably be in close proximity to it. You would have to handle it. You would be in direct contact with it. And yet that would mean that if the timing was such that a ceremony took place, you couldn't participate. Imagine the timing. Of all days. Not to be able to participate in something. It's the Passover. It's not like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll do the other one next week. You know, we'll be, we'll be a part of that. This is the Passover. Uncleanness through contact with the dead comes earlier in the text of the Torah, the law of Moses. You see this in Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11.24 says, by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches a carcass shall become unclean. In Leviticus 7 verse 20, it gives you the example of bringing peace offerings to the Lord. They're told here, the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of peace offerings while, is, while uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. So uncleanness, which through contact with the dead could take place, you could not ritually approach or participate in ceremonial or festal activity. That seems to undergird sacrificial offerings and festivals. That implies Passover. These men are unclean. This is just now the second Passover. And you can imagine a nation who in their consciousness is adjusting to what these regulations will look like on the ground. And not just theoretically from texts. What will it look like in practice? Well, what it looks like is certain men are prohibited from keeping Passover. That's the special case. And because they're unclean, they come to Moses and Aaron and they want some clarification. It's not like they have all of these stories and generations of examples and anecdotes where they can draw upon this. It's the second Passover. It's the only one they know of outside of Egypt. It's at Mount Sinai and there's a lot of stuff they're learning in really fast. Their time at Sinai has been only 11 months from start to finish, even though the months traveling from Egypt is what adds up to a year from that. They still have some more days and weeks before leaving Sinai. They have learned a lot in a short amount of time. And these people come up to Moses and Aaron and they say, oh, wait a second. In verse, in verse 8, 
Moses tells them, wait that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. That probably involves Moses going to the tabernacle to hear from the Lord. When he says here, that I may hear what the Lord will command, we should imply, I think, what earlier in the book of Numbers we see. The tabernacle set up for the glory and manifest presence and voice of God to direct the people through the mediator, Moses. Moses will hear from God. Just as Moses ascended Sinai and heard from the Lord. The tabernacle is a portable Sinai. The tabernacle is a place where the glory and presence and cloud of God are and hover. And Moses now enters the tabernacle that he might hear from the Lord on behalf of these who say, we have not participated in the Passover. We're unclean. What do we do? And one thing we can appreciate is the concern of these men because they were desirous to participate. After all, this is what they remember as God's redeeming great Judgment upon Egypt, delivering work out of uh, Egypt for the Israelites. That's a great and epic story. And they are prohibited from participating. Here are the instructions in verses 9 to 14. What's the Lord's reply? So you have the keeping of the Passover in the first part of our, our chapter. You have a special case of uncleanness that makes them think, what do we do now? And then what's the Lord's response? The Lord spoke to Moses and in verse 10 says, speak to the people of Israel, saying, if any one of you or of your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall keep the Passover to the Lord. Maybe you noticed here that more than uncleanness was mentioned in the Lord's response. Actually, an additional exceptional case. Did you catch it? Touching a dead body or on a long journey. This additional factor matters because not only would contact with the dead mean you couldn't participate in the Passover. What if you're on a long journey and you're nowhere near where the celebration is happening? Well, that seemed to put you in a geographical problem. If you were on a long journey and you could not be back by the 14th day of the first month, then you could not participate. And the Lord is going to address both of those exceptional cases. What do we do in a situation of uncleanness? And a situation of travel. In both cases, the Lord says in verse 10, they shall still keep the Passover to the Lord. All right, Lord, now how are we going to make that happen? Someone's on a long distance. They're not there with the people. Someone is unclean ritually. It's not like the Levitical laws don't matter anymore. What do you mean you shall still keep the Passover? Very carefully, let's look at verse 11. In the second month, On the 14th day. Oh wait, hold on now. The Passover takes place in which month of Israel's year? It's the first month. But there is an allowed postponement for those who were unclean, providentially hindered by being unclean, or away. And in the second month, they were allowed in those unique cases to participate. In the second month, on the 14th day, at twilight, they shall keep it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Let's notice what the Lord doesn't say. The Lord doesn't say, ah, so you missed it. That's all right. Just try again next year. No big deal. No big deal. This is the Passover of Israel. It's the annual remembrance of the Exodus. This is the second time they've had one. 
The Passover normally remembered on the 14th day of the first month would be on the second month on the 14th day for those who could not participate the previous weeks. It's of such importance to the life of Israel that the answer to the, from the Lord to Moses is just tell them not to worry about it. That's not the answer. This is the Passover. It is what defines them as a people who gather. The Passover is of such importance that they eat it, though one month later, with the same details. At twilight, on the 14th day of that month, with unleavened bread, with a killed lamb roasted over fire, and with bitter herbs. The only difference? A difference of four weeks. And it would ensure that any long journey has been wrapped up and any uncleanness has been resolved. But what if an Israelite looks at their calendar and says, oh, but it looks like I'm going to be gone next month on the 14th day too. Oh, don't let that be you. Don't even, don't even, don't even bring that up. There's no allowance for any other exception. Okay, how about we just schedule our lives to where we meet Passover. Okay, no matter what else we think is important, this is Passover. And in verse 12... The uniqueness of the meal is highlighted because uh, if you had a big meal and enjoyed it as a family and you had a lot left over, I bet your initial thought is we should probably just throw all this away. Instead, uh, you would probably keep it. If you had any Tupperware or uh, plates or whatever else you can store in a refrigerator. Here's what's so different about the Passover meal in verse 12. They shall leave none of it until the morning. None of it. This is not a normal meal. You said this doesn't sound like what they would typically do. Even the bread is unleavened, the bitter herbs. This is not what a normal meal would consist of. And it's not treated like a normal meal because it's not a normal night. It's the night where they remember the night of nights as a nation. When God brought them out by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Everything they're doing is unique in this case so that they can remember. And that means they don't leave any of it till the next day. Nor... Look in chapter 9:12. Nor do they break any of its bones. So a month later, for those who are long-distance travelers or providentially hindered by uncleanness, they keep the meal in the same way. According to all the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. You don't get different rules and procedures if you couldn't make it on the first month of the year. Now in verse 13... It says, but if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people. And now see, the two people, the friends that went to Aaron and Moses, they didn't even ask about this. This is for free. They didn't even have this as a question. But Moses comes back with this instruction as well. He says, let's say there are some of you, you're not unclean, you're not traveling long distance, you just don't keep the Passover. Listen carefully to this. The one who's clean and is not on a journey. If anyone fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people. Because he didn't bring the Lord's offering at his appointed time, that man shall bear his sin. Oh my. Let that settle on you for a moment. This involves someone who can keep the Passover and thinks to themselves, yeah, I just don't want to. They're not unclean. They're not away. Maybe they just think, I'll skip a year. I'll just be like an every other year Passover kind of Israelite. No. Maybe they've got other appointments that day. You know, when I look at my schedule, I'm already pretty booked. 
I've got some urgent things. And they forget that God has made this appointment. You know, they made other appointments. God has made this appointment. He has scheduled something for them. And they say, ah, might be difficult for me to reschedule what else I've got going on. It's not very easy. It's not very convenient for me to keep the Passover. I'm not going to keep the Passover. So you could imagine a variety of reasons why they're not unclean. They're not away. They just He says, behold, that person shall be cut off from his people. Because he didn't bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. This is a statement about judgment. Being cut off. Well, it could refer to a judgment of death. It more likely means exile from the community. Exile from the community, from the people of God. Because a refusal to keep the Passover is equivalent to rejecting the Lord. Do the commands of God not matter to them? Does the calendar and the first month shaping event, does it not compel them? What else compels them? What else are they more committed to? A refusal to keep the Passover is understood to be a rejection of the Lord because the Passover is not the idea of man. It wasn't voted on by the Sinai committee. The Lord has redeemed a people and given them an appointed time of remembrance and the regulations are for the Israelites and it is not a negotiable thing. The Passover in Exodus was a divine act of redemption and the divine command is in Exodus. Repeated in Leviticus, reiterated in Numbers, repeated again in Deuteronomy. You can't miss it. Carefully reading through the Old Testament, you come into the place where God has made appointments for the people throughout their year. Verse 13 envisions someone who does not want to obey the Lord. And that is a grave and serious matter because they look like they're among the people, but their heart does not love God. Their word does not direct their lives. Something else compels what they do. This envisions someone who does not want to obey the Lord and judgment follows. This is a sowing and reaping principle. The person sows rejection of the Lord, so they will reap rejection by the Lord. They have sown rejection of the Lord, and they will reap rejection by the Lord. Notice the last phrase, that man shall bear his sin. That means the the person who rejects the Passover. Can you imagine of all the things to reject? The remembrance of the Passover of the people that defines and sets up the nation. And you say, that's just not for me. I'm sorry. Have you not grasped what God has done? Do his commands and word mean little to you? This is speaking of a heart that is not just ignorant but rebellious against the Lord. Well, there is no covenant life for them. They're excluded from blessing in life, excluded from fellowship and peace, excluded from covenant and from inheritance. The person in view in verse 13 is saying by his actions, I don't want to remember the redemption of Israel with the people of God. I will not gather with them. I will not do what they do. That is not for me. The implication from verse 13 would be that those who know God will keep the Passover. They will organize their lives in a way to prioritize the commands of God. 
They want the rhythm of their lives to testify to godly priorities and faithful remembrance because not only do they know they need it, the Lord has commanded it. An application to this, an application to the new covenant community, think about what we enjoy far greater than the Passover. We can think as the new covenant community about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead on the first day of the week. And we gather as the Lord's people on the Lord's day because Jesus rose from the dead. An empty tomb echoes. There's a stone in Israel with angel fingerprints. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. And that's not some small thing. That's the life-defining, faith-shaping, life-directing, prioritizing, priority-trumping event that implies a pattern and rhythm of life. A weekly gathering of the people of God. That started taking place after the resurrection of Christ. The people of God, given what God had done in the Son, would gather. They would gather to pray, give, sing, hear the preaching of the Word and the reading of the Word. They would gather for baptisms and the Lord's Supper. They were the new Exodus people. That's who they were. They were the new Exodus people. The Israelites in Exodus walked through water. And Jesus walked through sin and the wages of sin that is death. And in Him we have died to sin and been raised to new life. We are the new covenant community and the new Exodus people. Christ is our Redeemer. And the work of the cross and the announcement of the empty tomb shapes the identity of the church. I wonder if it shapes yours. We gather as the people of God because that is what the people of God do. We want to prioritize our lives because we are saying we are disciples of Jesus. And that means something. So we gather and on the Lord's day we assemble. Now we might be providentially hindered. People might be physically unclean. You might be away in long distance and unable to gather. The normal pattern though for the Israelites and the normal pattern for the new covenant community should be a rhythm of gathering to remember our salvation in Christ Jesus. Amen. And this assembly is not just during the first month of Israel's year. It's the first day of every week, isn't it? Because of the empty tomb. And and the escalation of that ought to say to us, as great as the old Exodus was, something greater has happened in Jesus. And the weight of that and the glory of that ought to jolt us to the core of our being. What the Israelites remembered was great. What we remember is greater. Far greater. In verse 14, if a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rules, so shall he do. You shall have one statute. Both for the sojourner and for the native. You see, this is really good news for the uh, Gentiles in the region. Because the word stranger who's sojourning, who desires to keep the Passover, that's referring to a non-Israelite. That's another way of talking about Gentiles. And this is certainly envisioning a context where they will be in the land of Canaan in short order. Right? That's what the the goal is. Going to travel from Sinai, going to go to Canaan. We're going to live there. We're going to worship the Lord there. We're going to be a light to the nations there. Gentiles are going to worship the Lord as well. Even in Exodus 12, there are hints of this. 
In Exodus 12, we're told that a mixed multitude in Exodus 12, 38 came up with the Israelites. You know what that mixed multitude involved? Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles coming out of Egypt. Jews and Gentiles keeping the Passover. Why? Because the goal of the glory of God is to fill the nations with a knowledge of him. That's what Abraham was told, that through his family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the Passover would be for the Israelites and for any Gentiles who would come to worship Yahweh. Leave the idols that can't hear and see and speak and move. Worship God that pours judgment upon Egypt and splits the sea for the people. Worship Him, the living God, the true maker of heaven and earth. Passover was for the Israelites and any believing Gentiles who would come. The native, that's the Israelite. The sojourner, that's the Gentile. They would have one ceremony remembering the mighty acts of God. And together, they would be a community of believers. Together, they would remember the redeeming work of God through the mighty exodus. By faith, the Gentiles would have that history. They didn't have to be biologically descended from Abraham. Abraham was still their father in the faith. And the mighty acts of God in Israel, that's their story too. Because that's the God they serve. He's the covenant keeper. He's faithful to all his promises. He will judge the wicked. He will deliver his people. That's our story. Friends, we're Gentiles in this room gathered. And that's our story. He's our God. And he is faithful to us. In the storyline of Scripture, sin was a problem for every nation, and so Christ came to redeem a people from every nation. He came for Israelites, and He came for non-Israelites, and the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers are pointing in that direction. We're told in Revelation 7 that He redeemed a people purchased by His blood from every language, people, tribe, and nation. He's the Redeemer. Israelites and non-Israelites who confess His name. They are His people and they're in a new covenant. A better covenant. A better Savior. A greater exodus. A greater remembrance. As the four Gospels tell us the story of Jesus, we learn that His earthly ministry climaxed with His death. Of all the months of the year, it's the Passover month. Oh, there's no accident there. It's so providentially designed. It's the wisdom of God on display. When does Jesus die? Not just on the month of Passover, but on the day of Passover. He's on the cross while the lambs are being killed. He's the lamb. Numbers 9, we read about the second Passover. Oh, more than 1,400 more would come. More than 1,400 round the years. That first month over and over again in the Israel's calendar. Heading to the Roman Empire. First century setting in Jerusalem. Where on that Passover night, Jesus would die. He dies on that Friday afternoon when the lambs are killed. Hanging on the cross there. He's in the place of sinners. This is the biblical significance of the Passover. The Passover existed because from the foundation of the world, Christ would come. That's why Numbers 9 is in the Bible. Numbers 9 is in the Bible because from the foundation of the world, the Son of God would come to redeem sinners. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says Jesus is our Passover lamb. There it is. Can't get more explicit than that. He is our Passover lamb, Paul says. In 1 Peter 1.19, Peter says, We've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without blemish or spot. In the Old Testament, you need a spotless lamb. Peter says, we have one. His name is Jesus. 
And at the death of Jesus, he cries out in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. And he dies and a soldier pierces his side and blood and water flows from his side. And then in John 19, 36, we're told these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Oh, my goodness. From Numbers, from Numbers 9, from Exodus 12, there he is, the unbroken but crucified lamb. The perfect lamb. Even in John's account. The religious leaders are trying to be very careful not to render themselves unclean. It tells us in John 18, before the death of Jesus, these religious leaders led him from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was very early in the morning, we're told, they themselves didn't enter into the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. To see his Passover meal would still, uh, was coming and the lambs were going to be killed. And so like, we don't want to defile ourselves, which is what makes the actions of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea amazing. Because in John 19.38, Joseph says, Pilate, can I have the dead body of Jesus? Can I make contact with the dead? We're told in that verse that Joseph took away the dead body of Jesus. And Nicodemus helped in John 19.40. Nicodemus and and, uh, Joseph are touching and taking the dead body of Jesus. And they're wrapping it in cloths. And they're laying it in the tomb. And I wonder if any of the religious leaders looked at them and said, Guys, what are you doing? You just touched the dead body. Now you can't participate in the Passover. You'll have to wait till the second month and the 14th day. It would have been appropriate for them to reply, we won't need to keep the Passover a month from now. The one who died has atoned for our sins. He is the unleavened bread of life. He took upon himself the bitter herbs of sin and shame. And he is the lamb without broken bones. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Oh, let's trust and hope in Him. Will you stand with me?